if I was a flight attendant at an airline, my responsibility at this point would be to tell you that the uh, captain is preparing to land. Uh, the smoking signal is always on, on no smoking. Um, you don't need to fasten in your seatbelts, but we are coming to the end of our study of the Gospel of John. It's been over three years in which we have been studying this. It's been a great blessing to me uh, to be able to look at this in my preparation. I think I've, I've probably learned as much as any series in which I've had the opportunity to, to, to teach and to, to preach through. I hope there's been a blessing for you as well. We are in our second to last uh, passage. Next week we will land the plane. Uh, but this morning we are in John chapter 21. Uh, verses 15 through 19, what uh, is often known as the uh, restoration of Peter for those who are Bible students. A reading will begin in verse 15. So here are the word of the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me, the word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God, we do come with thanksgiving for this word that you have given us. Those who lived it, who represent us, who teach us how we live in you. I pray that you would not only open our minds to understand the scene that is before us, but open our hearts to receive the grace that is evident and offered through it. Renew us, we pray, by the power of your spirit, the grace of the gospel, this day, that we may enjoy our fellowship with you. We pray this in all things, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The anticipation was thick. It was a conversation that was a, a long time coming. In one sense, he was looking forward to it. It would be good to have this put in the rearview mirror to set things right and to hopefully be able to move on. But as much as he was looking forward to it, another side of him, maybe even more keenly and growing within him, was dreading the very prospect of it. And see, he had failed the one who had never been anything but good to him, one who had loved him in a way he had never been loved, loved him in a depth that he didn't even know was possible uh, to be loved. And yet when things got hot, 
when things became difficult. He abandoned him, and he denied him not once, but three times. Now, of course, the others that he was friends with, they all had failed him as well. But Peter had done it in such a spectacular way that all eyes were on him, and he feels the weight of the world upon his shoulders. More than anything he wishes he could do, have a do-over for that night. Somehow take a mulligan on the past and just live it out again and make the decisions that he didn't make. But he knew the same as we all know is you can't go back. You don't get a mulligan. You don't get to do things over. Here they were. Seated around a breakfast fire. Having just finished a breakfast that Jesus had made for Peter and for those who had been out fishing with him. They were enjoying the fellowship, the time of being together again. There's something familiar about this. The jokes that go between friends, the, the laughter and, and the sense of comfort. There had been other encounters since that night when Peter had denied Jesus, that night when Jesus had been arrested and accused and tried, sentenced to death, the next morning being executed by means of the cross. He died. Three days later, he had risen as he promised, though nobody understood those promises, but Peter, along with John, had run to the grave when they were told that Jesus was not there. And looking in, they understood that Jesus had promised that he would die and he needed to die and that he would rise again. They'd heard the words. They didn't understand the meaning. Now they understood and they believed, although they didn't have any comprehension of what it was exactly that they believed. And they went back to their home and soon after, Jesus appears to them. And even when they were out fishing and Jesus came and told them to turn, cast their net on the other side of the boat and they hauled in 156 tremendous amount of fish, the very fish that they were eating that morning. And during this time, they were together. And that was good. But it was incomplete. Peter had never had the one-on-one -on -one time. Peter knew that Jesus was there and he was acting loving, but there was still a breach that had not yet been reconciled. And now breakfast was over. The time that everyone knew was coming was at hand. It's not difficult for me to imagine what Peter was feeling at this time. I have failed people who love me. I've had more than a few of these hard conversations because of it. And I've failed God. The sense of emptiness and dread and, and regret that, it, that, that Peter, no doubt, was feeling. I, I understand that. I mean, what is it that you do? How do you respond when you know that you have failed God in a spectacular and miserable way? I suspect we all have our own coping methods, but through years of experience and counseling and it seems to me that people tend to fall into one of two extremes when they have failed God. One is my way, which is 
to wallow in despair and self-pity, to assume that God is essentially done with you. God can't like me anymore. I, I know God loves me and he's never going to forsake me and my salvation is secure, but it, it's kind of like it, it can't be used anymore. Not all thrown off the team, but I'm put on the bench never to get to play again. Just sitting there and wondering what if. On the other side are people who seem to just so easily dismiss it as if it was no big deal. Yeah, I failed God, but, you know, God will forgive me. That's his job, right? So just go on with no sense of their offense or what it is to, to sin and, and the way that God looks at our sin and the, uh, the ugliness, or as John Owen, the great Puritan, said, the, the sinfulness of sin, and, and that really creates a breach in that relationship, just kind of superficial glossing it over. Those tend to be the two ways that people respond, and most of us, whether we are fully at either extreme, we probably tend to gravitate toward one end or the other. But as I look at this particular passage and see Peter as he's anticipating and then engaged in the restoration process, one of the things that stands out to me is that Jesus does not allow either of those two extremes to exist. He engages Peter in order to restore him so that he cannot wallow in self-pity. But he engages Peter so that he cannot move on and just assume it's no big deal to sin against God and to fail the Lord. What we see in this passage is that restoration with Jesus also involves reconciliation and personal renewal. And that's what Jesus is doing here in Peter. And this is what he does in you and in me as we see how he is working in Peter here this morning. I mean, Jesus could have just moved on and just given Peter directions and said, Look, what matters now is what you do next and you know, now get on it and double down your efforts and get involved in the mission and go and help people. Or even come along with me and watch how I do it and then I'm going to empower it. I mean, in one sense, Jesus could have done that, but it would have left Peter incomplete. So instead of ignoring it, Jesus asks him a simple but a profound question. Do you love me? And it's a question that is not only for Peter, it's a question for all of us at any time, every day, because that is that question that is the foundation of the enjoyment that we can have in the relationship with Jesus in the first place. It's a fundamental question. We need to be asking ourselves, do I actually love Jesus? Do I love God? And that's the question that Jesus poses to Peter. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus prefaces the question. We don't know if Peter understood right away, but he knew something was up by the very fact that Jesus refers to him by his full name, Simon, son of John. He hadn't referred to him this way in quite a while. When we first see, meet him, he's Simon. Jesus meets him, and at some point along the way, say, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. You're going to be the rock. And from then on, we see Peter being, Jesus referring to Jesus as, as Jesus referring to Peter as Peter. Now here he is, and he's saying, Simon, son of John, is his full name. 
certainly would have gotten Peter's attention. Kind of like when you were a kid and your mom calls for you using your full name. You know, whatever, I won't pick on anybody, but John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, come home. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt looks at his friends and said, I got to go, guys. And they say, why? And he says, I don't know, but something's wrong. Uh, well, how do you know? Because my mom's using my whole name here. So Peter must have been tipped off to some extent, Simon, son of John. One Bible commentator says, uh, says this about that interaction. Jesus, using Peter's formal name, gives the conversation an air of solemnity. Now, I suspect that rather than the kind of the anger in the voice that I heard when I was a child, and maybe you heard as well when full names were used, there was something in Jesus' voice, his tone, and even in his body language that says, look, this is solemn, and this is serious, but don't be afraid. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he moves on, and it's the first time he asks this question. He asks the question three times, as we see in this text. The first time he adds to the end of it something that's very interesting. He says, do you love me more than these? The problem that we have is that we got passed on words and not a video. So we have no real idea of what these means. Bible commentators for generations have been divided as to what Jesus might have been referring to. There are some who assume that when Jesus was pointing to these, he was referring to the fish, at least those that were left over, maybe pointing to the boats and the net, which would have really been a reflection of, of symbols of wealth. Peter was a fisherman. It was a, a way of life, and having so much is an indication of some measure of prosperity. And so Jesus may very well have been looking at these things and saying, Simon, Son of Jonah, do you love me more than riches? Do you love me more than your way of life? Do you love me more than these? Whether that's what Jesus had done or not, it's an important question for any of us to ask is, do I love Jesus more than whatever material wealth and treasures I might be able to gain in this life? Other Bible commentators, and I think probably more founded would say that he wasn't referring to the fish or the boats or necessarily the material wealth, but when he said these, he was referring to the other disciples. And it certainly makes sense in the Greek, for the, uh, there was, it indicate the, the word for these is, is a masculine plural word, and had it been nets or fish, he might have used a, a word that was, more, was neutered. But Referring to all these guys that were around there, Peter's friends and, and colleagues, he was saying, could be saying, and seems likely to be saying, do you love me more than these? But that still poses us with a question. By asking, do you love me more than these, is Jesus asking, do you love me more than your friends and the things that you do and the, or you hang out and your hobbies that you do with them? It's quite possible, and that itself is an important question that we need to ask ourselves. Do I love Jesus more than the people that are in my life? I think most likely it has another aspect to that. I think Jesus asking that question was getting right at the heart of Peter's failure. See, the night that Jesus was betrayed and, Jesus, and that Peter had denied him, earlier Jesus had told them, all of you will fall away. 
And Peter's response to that prophecy was to say, look, I don't know about these guys, but if every one of them falls away, even if every one of them falls away, I will never fall away. I will never deny you. And he might have said, look, I'm the rock, right? I mean, so, um, you know, I'm steady. And in that statement, not only did he not know what he was talking about, but he revealed a, a, a sense of spiritual pride. In one sense, he seems to be putting himself over and above the other disciples. Look, and I know these guys, they may fall away, but not me. In another sense, he seemed to believe that he possessed within himself through his simple resolve that he would be able to do everything that God called him, him to do simply by committing himself to it, having no idea what was going to come, having no idea of the frailty that existed within his own heart and his own character. And even that night... He failed miserably, not once, not twice, but three times. And the last time, just for emphasis, when he was asked, aren't you one of Jesus? He decided to add some expletives in there. He said, I am bleepity, 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 not one of his people. And we're told that as soon as he did that, the cop crowed, and Jesus, who was being taken across the courtyard, looked, and their eyes locked. And Peter was broken, and he's continuing to feel that pain even up to the leading of this conversation. And now Jesus is getting right to the heart of his brokenness, of his failure, and saying, do you really love me more than these guys do? And what's interesting in this conversation is... Jesus' question and Peter's response. It's interesting in a way that's not revealed very clearly in the English. But Peter's not actually answering the questions that Jesus is asking. At least not directly. See, in the Greek, there are multiple words for love. And Jesus here is saying, when he's asking Peter, do you agape me? Agape, which is the unconditional, full absorb, just love, regardless of anything that may come back. I just love. It's a love that a mother has for her newborn child. It's just a, a love that just gives and expects nothing. It's the love that we are commanded to give to God. Love the Lord your God that is agape. Love others as you love yourself. It's agape. And Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I phileo you. Not a bad response, except it's not the same as what he's being asked. Do you unconditionally love me? No, I have a brotherly love for you. You know I have a brotherly love. We're connected. You've done so much for me. You know, where's Vaughn? I have a great affection for you. Jesus asked the question again, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you, you know it. And then the last time, Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you phileo me? And Peter is crushed, hurt, wounded, but he's asked three times, but it's in that emotion that we see that Jesus had finally broken through to the heart. We weren't going to go through the mere formalities here. Jesus was getting to the heart in order that he would be fully restored, not just, okay, we're fine, pat each other on the back and, and go about our business. 
He had to get into the heart, and Peter's heart needed to be opening. And Jesus does that with every one of us when we have failed. He continually comes to us, and the Spirit will ask us, do you love me? Until we deal with our inadequacies here, and Peter's finally dealing with the way that he has. And and what I find particularly fascinating in this is that Jesus doesn't respond with correction or anger at Peter's inadequate responses. I mean, what do we have going on here? The closest that I can think of it is, you know, think back to junior high when you were there or you work with junior hires, and so you get some guy in the class who has a crush on a girl who's way out of his league, and he writes a little note and says, I love you, and she sends it back. I like you, but I love you. I like you. I like you. What, do, you, do you really like me? I do like you. I mean, so we're talking about two different things here. That's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is going for the heart and saying, do you love me? Which is the command of the law. And Peter's saying, well, I like you. I have affection for you. And Jesus doesn't say, well, that's not good enough. In fact, he lowers his question to beat Peter where he is and saying, okay, do you have that affection for me? And he says, Yes. That's an indication for you and for me that we are inadequate. And it's not just the ways that we've blown it, but even when we are in process of being restored, sometimes we just don't have it within us to truly love God the way that he deserves. In fact, most of the time, probably almost any of the time, we just don't. But Jesus doesn't make that a deal breaker. He accepts the love that Peter has, and he responds by embracing him, by accepting him. And in the end, we see him inviting him, saying, follow me. That's important for some of you to understand. You who have failed the Lord and you've gone through certain motions or maybe you were drawn from certain things because you just don't know how that will go. He is asking you, do you love me? And the fact that your answer is inadequate is no way breaks that relationship because Jesus here is demonstrating what we're told and John understood and he wrote about later on. We love because he loved us. And Jesus is demonstrating that here in this exchange. Now, why is he doing this? Because Peter needed it. And you need it. And I need it. We need to know that even in our failures, Jesus does not reject us. Instead, Jesus loves us, restores us, renews us, and reconciles us all at the same time. And what's amazing is rather than correction, Jesus then offers commission. So the second thing we need to see here is not just a question that is foundation to reconciliation, do you love me? But we need to see that if you love the Lord, you will love other people. Or loving the Lord always leads to loving and serving other people. Love for Jesus is, compels us into mission. If you look at the passage, every time Jesus asks the question and Peter affirms his inadequate affection, Jesus gives him a commission. Feed my lambs, love my sheep, tend my sheep. It is every time he is, he's giving him a commission. And it's because he's demonstrating a true principle that we must embrace. If you love the Lord, it always expresses itself in love for others. There's a story in mission circles about the great Hudson Taylor, who was the pioneer missionary in China. He's the founder of the China Inland Mission. Apparently he was back in England and he was there for some large missions conference and gathering and the speaker who was going to introduce him, right as he was, he said, we have the pleasure to have with us this morning a man 
whose love for the Chinese has compelled him to give his life for the Orients. Hudson Taylor comes up and takes the platform. And really before saying anything else, he says he needs to offer a correction. He says, it's not so much that I love the Chinese, it's that I love the Lord. And because I love the Lord, he enables me to love the Chinese, and therefore I give my life for them. Love for the Lord always leads to a love for others and service of those other people. And we see that here because of the commission that Jesus uses. Each time there's an expression of love, his response is, do something for other people. And we see it with the different words. Feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. Now, in one sense, it may not be a particularly big deal, but commentator Edward Klink writes this. Even though the terms are generally synonymous, when they are used in such close proximity, there is usually a carefully nuanced distinction or comparison intended between them. And the context reflects the variety of sheep and the range of shepherding required. In other words, what he's saying is the way that this is written, while we could just look at this in general and saying that we are to love other people and this is what Peter has done, the fact that he's interchanging lambs and sheep here in such close proximity, it probably is a clue to some things that Jesus has in mind, the multiple faceted expression of our love towards other people. Another Bible commentary, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, says this about feed, the, the, phrase, the first phrase, feed my, feed my lambs. He says this, the fact that lambs are put first and sheep second and third could suggest a certain priority in Jesus' mission. First of all, the weakest, youngest, and most vulnerable. In other words, the first thing Jesus is commissioning Peter to do is to care for those who cannot care for themselves. In our present context, that would be ministry to children. Here we see a suggestion of the importance of a church and a people being committed to participating in the investment of raising children in the faith of loving the children, protecting the children. Star should be recruiting as soon as the service is done. But there are others who are vulnerable, the people who live on the margins of society, people that have been rejected by the church, sadly. People who the society rejects as well. When they come into the church, they are very vulnerable. Sometimes they know nothing about Jesus, and they need special care. We have an opportunity to participate in those kinds of ministries through our ministries of mercy, our partnership with 3E and Shelter Week, those kinds of things. We are able to engage. They seem to be reflected in Jesus' command to Peter to feed my lambs, the least, the most vulnerable, the most helpless. He also says, tend my sheep. And I think that what he has in mind there is the engagement within the broader community of Christians. When you are a Christian, you're not isolated. Now, Peter has a unique call because he's an apostle who is going to be sent and is going to preach. And most of us are not called to preach to the extent that he was. And most of us, most who are here, are not even going to give the opportunity to preach as much as I have the opportunity or Ben has the opportunity and, and a few others who are here do. But everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ has the same opportunity to feed, to encourage other believers with the use of the word. See, we come to church every Sunday to be renewed in God's grace because we are in need of it. It's also an opportunity to glorify God. But we also have need throughout the week. And as you live lives together, whether with members of this church or believers from other churches, wherever you work, wherever you are, we are constantly in need of being reminded that our identity is not in what we do, but who, who Jesus has said we are. 
and we can feed one another by reminding one another of the hope that we all share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In so doing, you are feeding. You're teaching people about Jesus. You're teaching even those who already know about it, but we encourage one another. There's attending. That's how we care for one another. So here we have the implication that as the church that we are to be caring for one another, involved in one another's lives, feeding and encouraging. But I couldn't help but remembering that in chapter 10, Jesus says, I also have sheep that are not yet of this fold, and they must be brought in also. And I realized that there's also a missional component here. Because there are sheep that are out there that belong to Jesus, but they haven't made profession of faith. We don't know the difference between the ones that are sheep that belong to Jesus and the ones who are not sheep that belong to Jesus. So therefore, we go to our community, to the nations, and proclaiming the hope of the gospel the love of Christ that we have experienced, that those who would believe would also be able to be brought into the fold. There is a missional component. And so we see here very specific, compelling through the love of Christ, compels us to be engaged in mission to one another, to people who don't know Jesus, and particularly to the least of these. And so we recognize the call to love God, the greatest commandment, leads to the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as he wraps up, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. In other words, Peter's past failures and his present inadequacy are not disqualifiers. Fellowship with Jesus participation in the ministry and mission that Jesus is on. Now, we have that kind of weird verse in between there that I'm not skipping over. It just might seem like it. It kind of sounds like a riddle that, you know, that ancient Far East riddle, what uh, walks on four legs when he's young uh, in the morning and was it walks on two legs at noon and walks on three legs in the evening and the answer is man. You crawl, you walk, and then you have a cane. If we didn't have this parenthetical statement in verse 19, it would just sound like one of those riddles. You know, when you're young, you do this, and when you get old, you do this, and we understand what it might be saying. You know, when you're, old, when you're young enough, you, you do whatever you feel like. And when you get older and you can't take care of yourself anymore, um, well, then somebody's got to help you. And there's truth that is involved in that, and so this is the life that Peter is going to live. But the fact that we're told this specifically relates to the death that Peter was going to die. Jesus is looking forward 34 years. Peter would be walking up a hill that's called Calvary, his hands bound. bound. And those who had him, when they got to the top, said, well, we'll let you live if you'll just shut up about this Jesus. No doubt he remembered this moment of restoration, and no doubt he remembered a couple weeks earlier when he had failed, and he says, not this time. In fact, his response was, not only will I not be quiet, I'm not worthy to be crucified, executed in the same way that my Lord was. So if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. And they were so impressed. That's exactly what they did. They crucified him until he died upside down. Well, that's kind of a bummer on an otherwise encouraging message, except I think it's important that we understand when Jesus calls us to follow he is reminding us that every one of us will take up a cross of some sort. Engaging in the ministry of Jesus is not a promise of life, of ease, and of prosperity. And the heretics that are on TV and selling books and in some of your bedrooms when their books are there, 
they are leading people to hell and lying about our God. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll love the people who are around you, and it isn't going to be easy. Some of you are going to suffer in some very specific ways. Some of you are going to suffer less. Some of you are just merely going to experience annoyances. But this is what we are called to if we follow Jesus. And the only thing that would lead us to do that is to be able to answer the question in the affirmative, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Now, I'm going to wrap up with this question. How does God feel about you right now? You had to answer that right away. Maybe a better way of putting it is, how do you feel that God feels about you right now? See, it's an important question for us to ask. Because there are some of us who are here who fear that when God looks at us, what he sees is a loser. He sees a failure. Because we have failed him. We've pressed on and we're living and we try to paint the face on and we do the right things and you know we know there's mercy, we know there's grace, but we we do not feel restored. But what Jesus says here to Peter in this passage is essentially this. Don't get sidetracked sidetracked by your failure. He's saying to Peter, look, we all saw it. It was, yeah, it was pretty bad. In fact, it was, it, was, it was awful. But I went to the cross. I died for your sin. It was buried when I was buried. And when I rose again to new life, it's a new beginning and a new start for you. It's, it's done. And when he says, follow me, he's saying, let's not stay here. Don't let the failures of your past define your now. Follow me. Get in the game. Because there's a world out there that is broken. It is hemorrhaging in pain because of its sin. And this world needs the people of God to believe and to accept and to proclaim the message of God that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But some of us are stunted from our failure. We're out of the game. You're not engaged in mission. You may not be involved in a small group because you just don't want to open up that pain. You, you may not even be regular in worship because it just, God feels so distant. You've withdrawn. Flipping channels during the UVA game last night. Somebody that showed up coming up is the, sometime, I didn't see when, but the movie Top Gun's coming back on. I mean, it's like, how often does that come on? I mean, no more than once every three or four days. Um, but the essence of the end of that movie really is a picture of this. You know, Maverick, who is still welling in the guilt of his own failure and the punishment, the cost that it paid somebody else while he failed somebody who loved him. And, and even when he is re-engaged, he's only partially re-engaged. And so when he goes into battle, he actually withdraws from the people that he is supposed to be supporting. And the whole end of the movie revolves around he withdrew. That's what they expected of him to do. But unless he re-engages, there is no hope for the ones that he's supposed to love and to care for. 
but he does re-engage. And by re-engaging, he not only sets free the one who was in danger, he becomes free himself. And this is the message of this particular passage to those of you who have failed and those of you who will fail. And I hate to break it to you, that's all of you. Some of you know it from this week. Some of you had a good week. This is another week. You will fail. But that does not disqualify you from fellowship with Jesus. Jesus came to restore the fellowship, and he asks the question that we must answer. Do you love me? And he extends an invitation that we must respond to. Follow me. So what will you do? Lord, we pray with thanksgiving that you have revealed to us the brokenness of those who have gone before us and the hope that is ours because of Jesus. May you restore and renew and reconcile those who feel far from you, reminding them that you volunteered to the cross because you loved us. Give us the grace to receive your love and to be restored and to be empowered so that we may follow you fully bear fruit for the sake of your name. We pray in Christ. Amen.